Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12 through verse 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. You can have a seat. Uh, this morning, uh, some of you have been around for a little bit. You know, um, we uh, love the opportunity to uh, help others uh, to, to get the chance to preach and to practice uh, the skill of preaching. We, uh, if, if, if churches don't raise up new preachers and new pastors, then, then who will, right? And so one of the people that maybe you've seen if you've been around uh, uh, come up here and preach is Caleb. And um, so we're pleased to uh, be able to be blessed by the work that the Holy Spirit has done through Caleb as he's prepared this sermon. And so um, let me pray for him as we get ready to hear God's word preached. Lord God, we come before you and we confess that we have sinned and that we have this, uh, uh, we're, we're, we're born into this world with this this propensity, this bent towards sinfulness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you've redeemed us from that. I pray this morning as we hear uh, your word preached, that if there's any places where we need to be convicted, Lord, that you would convict us through your Holy Spirit. If there's any places where, where we are needing to be lifted up and encouraged, that you would encourage us through your word this morning. Lord, we pray for Caleb pray that he would rely on you and on your spirit as he preaches uh, this passage. And uh, Lord, we pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would be at work through him and in us. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, as we began studying the book of Romans, Cody actually shared with us that the main idea for this book is this that the gospel must shape our church's beliefs and behaviors. 
And as we've read and studied, we've talked about ways it does so, but with the depth of some of these passages, it can be easy to lose track or lose focus of that. Today's passage is a really good example of where it would be easy to do so. So let's go over just kind of a summary of how we got to where we are. Paul started the book as a greeting to the Gentile church, the church in Rome, and he shares that he's been wanting to visit them so that he can share the gospel with them and be mutually encouraged by them. Paul then seemed to take a big shift and started sharing about man's fallen nature, our sinfulness, and how God's wrath is revealed against rebel sinners. Paul then shared that righteousness comes not from the law, but through faith apart from the law, as it did for Abraham. He shares how by faith we turn from under wrath to peace, from fear to joy and hope because of what Christ did for us. Last week, our passage ended with, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Today's passage is placed at this real pivotal place after Paul has summarized sin, righteousness, grace, faith, to answer some questions that we naturally want to ask. If faith is all it takes to justify us, could sin really be that pervasive? Because it feels like more should be needed than that. And if it is that pervasive, could Jesus really take care of it? Because there's a lot of really bad sin throughout all of history. These questions have been asked time and time again by readers of Scripture and of Romans in particular. But the key point Paul is making in today's passage, the, the takeaway for us is this. God's grace abounds much more than man's sin. Paul's going to illustrate this point with a comparison, um, almost like an announcer in a wrestling match. He first introduces man's problem and how sin and death have spread. And then he follows that up with God's gift and how through Christ, grace and life have been offered. And then finally, Paul pits the two against each other and shares what happens when they come head to head, how God's grace is greater than our sin. So we start today with man's problem, that sin and death have spread. We're going to read in verses 12 through 14, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through that one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Just like Paul shifted at the beginning of his letter, we're seeing that here again. Lest we be tempted to think too little of our fallen state and the sinfulness of mankind, Paul here sizes up our fallen nature and provides us with two main truths about it. The first truth is this, sin leads to death. In Genesis 2.15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree that is in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. For those of us that were raised in the church, we understand that death and sin entered the world because of mankind's disobedience to this command. That man chose to believe a lie about God and wish to be his own God rather than submit to the creator's defining of right and wrong. We also understand that although physical death did eventually come to Adam and Eve, the much greater problem was the spiritual death they experienced and being out of right relationship with the creator and source of all good things. That separation wasn't just experienced by Adam, though. As his descendants, we all experience that in our lives. We experience common grace in the beauty we see in the world, in the glimpses of God's original plan that we see in things like marriage or raising children. But we also see sin and death have tainted even those most pure elements of God's creation, that nothing is free from its grasp. Not only do we experience the result of Adam's sin, we actually go further, though, and add to it. Each person's desire for their plan, their way, them getting to define what is right and wrong for themselves, their wants to be met, makes us wonder why after so many thousands of years there's any good left to see in the world. James puts this idea of sin leading to death in a more down-to-earth and clear, though somewhat disturbing way for us. We read in James 1, 14 through 15, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Here he uses the analogy of reproduction and the birthing of a child. He says each person is lured and tempted by their desires, essentially promise fulfillment and pleasure and joy. These are very seductive phrases. And when acted upon, desire conceives. It seems like it'll bring about what we want, that it'll bring us life and joy and beauty, and so we sin. We rebel against God's way of doing things and do them our way. And when that sin is fully grown, we find that it comes out dead, not alive like we were hoping. Instead of joy, we have sorrow. Instead of being fulfilled, we're broken. It's no mistake that James chooses one of the greatest sources of pain a human can bear, one of the greatest examples of how fallen our world is from the original plan, as his analogy here. We can easily see how Adam was lured and enticed and how his sin led to death, spreading to us all. But this isn't just Adam's story. It's the story of every man and woman who's ever lived. We each do this. We take things either not in God's way or not in God's time or not for God's glory because we think it will fulfill us when what we're actually made for, what would actually fulfill us is the very thing that we've rejected. Paul's going to discuss this later um, a little bit in Romans 6 as well. But the second truth from this portion of the passage is this. The law, 
leads to condemnation. See, Paul knows our response to hearing death spread to all men because all sinned is to say, if I was Adam, I wouldn't have done that. He only had one rule to follow, and he broke it. It's not fair we all have to suffer for Adam's sin. Well, guess what? God gave us another chance to try when he gave us the law. He laid out what a perfect life looks like so that we could try to succeed where Adam failed. And guess what? We each fail at that too. We're all truly Adam's children. Not only that, but once we knew the law and broke it anyway, it actually served to make sin even more sinful. It'd be wrong for a small child to decide to go to the pantry and get whatever they want, but it would be more wrong if they were told by their parents specifically, do not eat this, and they did it anyway, like Adam did, like each of us do. I believe that's what Paul is saying here when he says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin isn't counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Sin reigns in those with the law who were told like Adam what not to do and who do it anyway. But sin also reigns in those who existed before the law was given or who don't know the law and yet choose for themselves to rebel against God in the way they live. So not only are we born unable to know what God wants of us because of our separation from God through Adam, even when God chooses to graciously reveal what that is to us, despite our fallen nature, we rebel against it anyway. We are truly fallen creatures. But, Paul begins in the next part of today's passage, there's more. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Paul's introduced man's sin problem that we inherited from Adam, and it seems so terrible and overwhelming and unbeatable. But then he introduces the free gift, which he obviously believes is the stronger of the two. Much more so, he says, in this passage, he shares how in contrast with the actions of Adam, through the, through the actions of Christ, grace and life have been offered, which is our second point. Like with man's fallenness, Paul sizes up this free gift by expounding on two main truths for us to take away. The first truth is this, grace leads to justification. That statement might not sound really shocking to those of us who've been raised in the church, but I think we need to take a moment to really let that sink in because I think we miss it sometimes. To be 
justified, to be right before God, what should that take? What should we have to do? Is there anything we could do? We're tempted to believe right works, the law, leads to justification. But like Paul shared earlier, the law leads to condemnation. There's nothing we could do. Paul has made that clear. All that is left for us is to receive our just punishment from a good God for our rebellion. And so God, through Christ, did what we could not. He humbled himself. He lived in our fallen, twisted world that he created as good. He experienced all the ways we had ruined it firsthand. He experienced the pain we deserved, the results of centuries of sins that had impacted human life in his time. He died, though he hadn't sinned. And then he offered his righteousness for us. Instead of the line of Adam trying without success to somehow make up for our rebellion so we can avoid our just punishment, Jesus has said, I have paid the price you owed so you can be justified before God. We shouldn't be confused here. Grace is not cheap. We're tempted to think it is or treat it like it is because all it costs us is faith. But the reason we're justified by grace through faith is because Jesus already paid the crushing debt of our sin, not because it wasn't a big deal. The grace of God is costly. It cost him the life of his son. So once Paul has made clear that this free gift by grace leads to justification, he follows it up with a related truth. The free gift of righteousness leads to life. This is a parallel idea to sin's outcome being death, though it promises us life. Here, he shares how Christ's righteousness given to us through his death brings us true life. Not only are we justified or made right with God, though that would be more than we deserve, we're made righteous. We no longer have to live up to a standard to be approved by God. We are approved. We're free to live no longer out of fear or for our desires, and we can truly live for the purpose we were created for. In hope and joy, submitted to God, not to earn something, but out of Thankfulness for the love he's shown to us already. Christ didn't just save us from our condemnation and the punishment of our sin. He saved us for righteousness in the life he created for us to live in the first place. One of love and trust and faith and gratitude and joy and awe. That's true life. And it's something given to us, not something we can earn. Finally, we come to the pinnacle of today's passage, verses 18 through 21, where we read, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinner, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, So that as sin reigned in death, 
grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here, Paul pits Christ's work against Adam's sin even more directly, not just describing what they are or even how they're different, but how they interact. His main point from the verses, these verses and the main point of this sermon is God's grace is greater than our sin. Paul starts by recognizing we're comparing the results of one trespass to one act of righteousness, one man's disobedience to one man's obedience. He's really setting this thing up. Something's going to go down. Which will win? Sure, God's grace is enough for some, but what about those who are extra sinful? I mean, if Christ's death was what was needed for the most holy saint or church father, what will be needed to pay for the sins of those who've sinned much more? Paul, again, gives us two big truths we should take away from this portion of the passage. First, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. This is such a hard thing to wrap our brains around because our first reaction is to argue as to why that can't be true or shouldn't be true. It feels wrong to say that more sinning brings about more grace being shown when we know what it deserves is more wrath to be shown. This truth also brings up questions about the implications of this for our lives. Paul knows these questions are so important that he's going to devote a section following this one next week to addressing it. Suffice it to say for this week that this does not mean that we should sin more so that God's grace can be shown more. However, our initial fear that when our sin is pitted against God's grace, somehow our sin's going to win, it's not true. This truth that even when man fails, and no matter how much we have failed, God's grace is sufficient for us as well, allows us, like I said before, to live in gratitude and hope. Not to take advantage of that grace, but to be in awe of it. Understanding how fallen we are, all are, in our sin, and understanding how gracious God is to sinners are two key components of understanding the gospel that help us shape what we believe and how we behave as Christians. The second truth we're going to discuss from these verses is this. Where sin brought death, grace brings life. We already learned that sin leads to death and righteousness to life. But here Paul again shares that sin reigned in death. What does that mean, though? As Cody shared before, a king's kingdom is where his authority is recognized. Here, Paul is saying that in the spiritually dead and in the physical deaths of mankind that we deserve, sin is the ruling power. What it says goes. It is the source we turn to for pleasure and it's the thing we most detest in ourselves and others. But like a bad king, we can't depose it. It's in charge. Death is sin's turf. But grace reigns through righteousness. 
once again, something in us and in the original readers expects Paul to say, righteousness reigns through the law. That's what many non-believers think that Christians preach, that you need to do more, try harder to fight or flee the kingdom of sin and death. But he makes clear again here that the law actually came to increase the trespass, not so that we might find righteousness through it. There's something in us fallen humans that wants righteousness to be our ruler instead of sin. Here's something I think is essential that changes everything for us. Paul writes, the power opposed to sin's reign is not righteousness. He writes that grace reigns through righteousness. Grace is the power opposed to sin. And righteousness is the place in which those under the rule of grace live, just like those under the rule of sin live in death. Life, true life, eternal life is grace's turf. You may feel a little overwhelmed like I did after just this brief glimpse into how the gospel works. It's like taking the back off of a watch and seeing for the first time how all those little gears work together. And honestly, we've only scratched the surface of this passage and how it interacts with other passages in Scripture, let alone how the gospel works as a whole. But if you remember, I said this book's main idea is this, that the gospel must shape our church's beliefs and behaviors. These truths aren't just something for us to stand in awe of. They're something for us to believe and apply in our lives. But what does that application look like? Although I think there are many ways to apply these truths, um, here's a few for us to think through today. First, don't downplay our sinfulness. Sin really leads to death. Paul certainly doesn't downplay it for all his talk of grace. Believing what Scripture says about the line of Adam, what the line of Adam has done, and what we deserve is core to understanding the depth of God's love and grace toward us. How can we expect to forgive others who have hurt us in truly terrible ways, pray for those that hate us, and live lives of humble gratitude when we make it out like our sins and the sins of others are no big deal? If we, I believe we do our friends and God a major disservice when they confess their sins to us and we say, oh, that's not so bad. I used to do that too. Or even skip over their sin and go directly to grace. We should recognize that our sin and the sins of others are far greater and far more far-reaching than we realize. They affect others. They make the world more fallen and more painful they're a perversion of God's original plan. They're rebellion toward him, not just an inconvenience in their lives that God wants to help them brush up on. Secondly, do not rely on our righteousness. When our response to our sin or the sins of others is to tell them to fix this or stop doing that, we're, doing, we're once again doing a major disservice to the gospel. In Matthew 5.20, Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
These are people that knew and read the scriptures, prayed and fasted more than you've ever thought of doing or thought of suggesting that one of your friends should do. And they did not have life. Sin reigned in them. Why? Because life and righteousness don't come from the law. They come as a free gift of God. Give your friends that, not a try-harder speech. As long as you continue to practically rely on your righteousness to save you, you will miss out on the life that God wants for you to live. Scripture, prayer, and fasting are good if done from a heart thankful for its righteous standing before God. But our distractions and false hopes, if we rely on them to be the things that make us right or fix us, Third application for today. Do not underestimate God's grace. When we or our friends fail, sin, and think that our righteous standing before God is somehow diminished because of it, we are making out our sin to be stronger than God's grace. We're not honoring God or being humble by thinking or saying so. We're actually dishonoring his grace and being extremely prideful. Although we should understand our fallenness, we should also understand and live like our righteousness is the result of grace, not of works. It's not like God's surprised and saying, well, if I'd known you had done that, or if I knew you were going to do that, I wouldn't have shown you that grace. He showed it to us while we were still blatantly opposed sinners. We read last week in verses 6 through 8, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when you sin and confess that to someone else, or when someone confesses their sin to you, when you catch your child in sin, Take the chance to speak into that and apply these truths, the gospel. Share how what was done was not just a bad choice, but rebellion toward God. How desire enticed you or them and conceived and brought forth death in the end, not satisfying us like it promised to. Don't just tell them not to do it again or to do something different, but how Christ died for that sin that he paid a costly price to make them righteous before God. Then ask them to confess their sin to God and ask them, because of that grace, what they think God would have them do to live in the righteousness he created them to. That is how we grow as believers, not just by stopping bad behaviors, but by remembering the gospel, by submitting to grace's rule in the land of righteousness. So as we leave today, may we allow this passage to awe us with the grandness and complexity of the gospel, but may we also allow it to encourage us with the simplicity and clarity that the grace of God works, that it is enough, and that God's grace abounds much more than man's sin. Please pray with me. Father, thank you so much for your grace. 
Help us to understand more and more the depth of our sin. Help us to understand more and more the greatness and the strength of your grace and mercy toward us. May we not rely on ourselves or our righteousness, but rely on your son and what he's done for us. May we speak these truths into our lives and the lives of others. And may your Holy Spirit strengthen us to honor you as we go out into the world this week. Apply these truths and live that life under grace. In Jesus' name, amen.